You can hear me? Yeah, I can hear you great. So yeah, we can just talk about this article and the political landscape and whatever else you want to talk about. Yeah, that sounds good to me. I mean, I'm ready. I'm ready to have a, a relatively free floating conversation. Um, great. I think that we should keep it a bit brief. I'm with my family now, and I hate to be away from them for too long. Yeah, can't. You don't want to lose alienate them. Also, last thing we need is for them to become Mayor Pete fans or something. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> it's going to happen if we go over like you know 25 minutes or 30 minutes or yeah, something. Yeah, exactly. That's yeah. the cutoff. Hey. You never know. Hello and welcome to the Katie Helper Show. Happy holidays. Please rate and review the Katie Helper Show on iTunes. Helps uh, us get the word out about the show. And uh, it's always nice to have a bunch of stars, positive reviews, all that jazz. As always, you can support the Katie Helper Show at patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. You're not only supporting the Katie Helper Show, though, of course, you are because I don't get any, you know, commercials or any of that. You probably know this because you're listening to this and you've listened to it before. But anyway, you can support The Katie Helper Show at patreon.com slash The Katie Helper Show. And of course, you get bonus episodes. They include an interview with, wait for it, Peter Dale. On today's show, I speak to Megan Day. Megan is a staff writer at Jacobin Magazine. Her work has also appeared in The New York Times, The Guardian, Vox, Verso, Mother Jones, The Week, The Baffler, In These Times, M Plus One, Timeline, Full Stop, and Elsewhere. Her nonfiction book, Maximum Sunlight, was excerpted in the Best American Non-Required Reading 2017. You can find out more about Megan and her work at MeganDay.com. That's M-E-A-G-A-N-D-A-Y.com. Megan and I refer to Charles Pierce. And just to clarify, Charles Pierce is a writer, blogger, liberal pundit and game show panelist which i did not know and he writes for esquire i also refer to megan as a cool kid and that is a reference to the piece in politico published earlier in december called how the cool kids on the left turned on elizabeth warren the socialists of jacobin magazine used to treat her like a promising alternative to bernie sanders now they write as if she's almost as bad as joe biden what gives making her katie helper show debut after many um attempts and scheduling difficulties out here in the Bernie Bro world. Uh, so excited to have Megan Day on the show. I'm glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, of course. And um, listeners probably know that Megan is a DSA organizer and a staff writer at Jacobin. Uh, she's also part of the Cool Kids Collective that was uh, exposed by Politico. And those are, of course, the mean cool kids who go after Elizabeth Warren at Jacobin. And she's also a what is she like a nursery age? What, what did what did um our beloved um, <laughs> I think Charles he just called Pierce me. Say? I think he just called me a child. Just really he kept it real simple. Yeah, yeah. and we'll get into that. I'll, I'll draw that that tweet. But basically, you were chided and talked down to by uh, woke male ally Charles Pierce, <laughs> right? Who was um, thought that Bernie Sanders had to rein you in because you were making, I guess, like toxic Bernie bro arguments, um, by which I mean you were making policy critiques right. and um, a very policy based argument. Anyway, we'll get back to that. But that, those are just two of her online fame moments. And you're based in the Bay Area and you have a new piece that you just wrote with recent father and friend of the show, Matt Carp. The piece is called Bernie is the candidate who can beat Trump. Here's why. So lay out what you argue in this Jackman piece, whose subtitle is, do you want to see Donald Trump defeat in 2020? Of course you do. The candidate who is best positioned to do exactly that, Bernie Sanders. 
Yeah, so Matt was the one who came up with the idea to write this piece. And um, as far as getting him on this show, I honestly didn't even ask him once you and I talked about it because he just had a baby. So I know he's busy right. changing diapers and being a new no, father. Yeah, of course. <laughs> right. Yeah. So Matt, Matt's the one who came up with the idea for this piece. And, and he brought it to me. And uh, basically, he was like, everywhere you turn you see that the electability argument is being weaponized against Bernie Sanders. Um, we need to make the definitive case for why Bernie Sanders is actually the best positioned candidate to defeat Donald Trump. So that's what we set out to do. Um, at the very beginning of the piece, we basically try to give people a, an overview of why this um, electability gambit is so misplaced and misguided. It, basically, what, what we're seeing is that Democrats are terrified of a Donald Trump victory, and the mainstream media has convinced them that Bernie Sanders is too far left to go up against Donald Trump. And so even though Bernie right. Sanders has the highest favorability ratings in the Democratic Party, which is to say that the Democratic Party's base likes him the most, he his poll numbers aren't actually keeping up with that. There's a discrepancy between his, his poll numbers and his favorability ratings. And that's because people like Bernie Sanders, but they're afraid that other people don't like Bernie Sanders. And so they don't want to send him up against Donald Trump because they've been convinced that he would be a disaster because he's too far left. And so what they're doing is they're actually intentionally in a sort of hive mind fashion, um, possibly, potentially, very dangerously electing to send up a less likable, less exciting person against Donald Trump potentially resulting in a disastrous defeat. So we're just trying to give people, um, tell people to trust their gut, actually. I mean, we don't have to convince people that Bernie is is good, actually. Most right. people understand that Bernie is, is pretty great. People like Bernie Sanders. He, he may not be their n number one choice, but almost everybody in the Democratic Party space actually likes Bernie Sanders. There's a vocal contention of people who don't. Um, but you know, most people are pretty overrepresented warm. on social media and also media media, the media exactly. elite, right? Overrepresented yeah. in mainstream media because they are the media elite with ties to the sort of capitalist class elite and then em emboldened by those people to be extremely loud on social media. Yes. But in, right. in reality, if you go walking around in the world and you ask people who are likely to vote Democrat how they feel about Bernie Sanders, generally pretty positive. So we're just trying to convince people to trust their gut on this. If you like Bernie, that means that other people are likely to like Bernie. You're not weird, actually. The things that you like about him are, in fact, broadly appealing to people. So that's the whole reason for the piece. Um, but we do get into some more specific arguments, which is that in order to... So in order to defeat Donald Trump, there are three main constituencies that the Democratic Party nominee needs to capture. The first is the group of Obama voters, two-time Obama voters, who switched over to Donald Trump in the Rust Belt. Uh, they've been often discussed. Everybody knows what the deal is with these people, so I won't go into it. But the long and short of it is that Bernie Sanders is very appealing to those exact people, the people who voted for Obama twice and then voted for Trump. Uh, in the 206 counties that flipped, Bernie Sanders has far and away the most individual donations. And I know that he has the most individual donations in general, like everywhere. But in these mm -hmm. counties, we're talking like three times as many individual donations as the, you know, as everybody else who's trailing behind him in the Democratic right. Party nomination. So he's got a lot of support in these places. And it makes a lot of sense because his argument is an economic populist argument. He's talking about, you know, the working class. He's talking about higher wages, good unions. He's 
he's talking about reversing disastrous trade deals. I mean, of course, this this message resonates with people who live in these places, right? Um, so that's the first group. But the second group is a massive group of two-time Obama voters who just didn't vote in 2016 mm -hmm. for president. They just were not interested. I mean, something like 1.7 million ballots were cast across the country where people showed up to the polls and then just didn't list anybody for president. Right. So that's really important. Right. It's not that these, I mean, disenfranchisement is a thing. Gerrymandering is a thing. Redistricting is a thing. Um, this there were cases, though, as you guys point out in this piece, where it wasn't that. And you had people showing up and still refusing to vote. Right. So that doesn't explain the, all of that. that. And I well, do yeah. think that, like, while I think that voter suppression is actually a very important issue, obviously, and I'm glad that liberals want to pay attention to it, it's, you can't use it as a get-out-of-jail-free card. You can't be like, look, of course, the voter if, we, if it weren't for this voter suppression, you know, our candidate would have blown the other guy out of the water. That's just not true because people literally showed up to vote right. and yes. did actually cast ballots and just didn't choose between Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump. And, um, you know, plenty more people just didn't show up to the polls at all. And Pew Research Center asked those people why. And they found that uh, something like 25% of them said that it's because they didn't like either candidate. Well, that might sound low, but in previous years, that number has been like, you know, idling around like 8% or something like that. So it absolutely shot up in the 2016 election. People just did not like the candidates on offer. So again, Bernie Sanders is exciting to people like that, people who wanted to vote for Obama because they wanted change, who did not see that Hillary Clinton represented change and who were just a little too smart to take the bait of Donald Trump representing some kind of change that would actually positively impact their lives. So the third category is the most important category, and that's just non-voters. I mean, in the United States, we, we talk about the voting pool like it's restricted to the people who always show up to vote. We have one of the most dismal voter turnout rates in the entire developed world. Um, it's just extremely pathetic. And uh, the reason is because people don't see themselves reflected in the political process and they don't actually, they're completely disenfranchised and disillusioned by politics and they don't see anything to care about. So we have to think about how we're going to reach those people. Just, the, the actual ratio of non-voters to voters in the United States means that if you were to just get a little bump from non-voters, you could dramatically change the outcome of an election because there are so many non-voters compared to voters. Um, wow, yeah. So, so you just think about the math on that. So then you have to think, who's going to be able to excite non-voters? Well, if you want to actually answer that question, you need to look at the demographics of non-voters. They are young, more than they're old. They're people of color, more than they're white. And they're overwhelmingly, I mean, just absolutely the number one characteristic is that they're working class, and in particular, low-income working class. So mm -hmm. uh, Bernie Sanders blows it out of the water with all three of those categories. I mean, far and away. And we go into it in the piece, so I won't bore you with all of the um, statistical arguments that we make, but just think about it for a second. If you want to bring out non-voters, you, you, we don't need to make a complex moral argument for why Bernie Sanders is like representing change for non-voters and and you know that therefore they ought to we we think that they ought to get up out of their seats you can just look at the demographics that don't vote and the demographics that Bernie Sanders is appealing to right now and um so I, that that's that's our case for why Bernie is best positioned particularly in rust belt and battleground states to overperform his democratic party rivals against Donald Trump and we also just wanted to make the case that Donald Trump is not undefeatable um we think that Democrats sometimes think of him as being 
a complete juggernaut like he's a he's endowed with like obscure and magical powers because they've tried to it's this it's this kind of inter internet joke like let's see old donnie trump wriggle out of this one and then he wriggles out of it efforts effortlessly exactly, and, so, yeah. and so democrats are banging the their walls head are closing the wall. in the walls are closing in well the reason democrats are banging their head against a wall on this one is because they're not willing to try the actual thing that would work which is that we need a left-wing change candidate to rival the right-wing "Quote unquote change candidate that captured hearts yeah, and minds. It's just common sense. It's common yeah. sense. So that's that's the upshot of the article. And then the second half of the article is that we want to just make the point that it's not just that Bernie Sanders, we think, stands a much better chance of defeating Donald Trump. It's also how that contest is going to shape up that's going to transform American politics. It's going to be, if it really transpires, it'll be the most high-profile spectacle of class conflict in modern American electoral history. Just think about it. These, like, Think about the, the almost poetic story that's going to be told. Two men about the same age were born miles away from each other in New York City. One of them lived life with a silver spoon in his mouth. He was given money by his father to start casinos. He made money discriminating against, uh, you know, people of color in his housing empire. He cheated and lied his way to the top. And now he's cheated and lied the American people from the White House. The other has committed his entire life to the struggle for justice for those among us who are less privileged, for people who work for a living, for ordinary Americans. And, um, you know, that's going to be a really powerful story, and it'll be a totally different story and one suffused with class antagonism, which we haven't seen in American politics, which has been suppressed in American politics by the bipartisan pro-corporate elite, right? They don't want to talk about all this class warfare stuff, yada, yada. But I think Bernie Sanders versus Donald Trump is going to bring that roaring back to life, and that has, a, has the opportunity to transform our political landscape for decades, for generations to come. To show what class... Um, warfare, nonviolent class warfare can and mm -hmm. can look like, mm -hmm. and turn that into a spectator sport. That would be amazing. So I'll take us to that. My dad's from Queens, also, so I'm as half Queensian. I have a special connection uh, <laughs> right. to the that you know redeeming Queens by defeating Trump. Yeah, you must. Um, it's a matter. Yeah, of, it's a matter of pride. Yeah, exactly. Also, as a Jew, I'm very very happy about having Sanders be a a, a, a new face. Um, well, I mean, you wouldn't know it from the mainstream media discourse. It's like people are acting like there's nothing special about Bernie Sanders. Right, just he's another just old a straight white, white man. Yeah, <laughs> exactly, an old white guy. It's so funny how back in 2016, the demographics of his supporters were so important. Mm -hmm. And now, for some reason, they're not. I, don't, I wonder why that's not part of the discourse at all. Maybe <laughs> because it's been, maybe because his support is uniquely um, diverse, uniquely non-white and um, female could be that I think it's probably that and and you realize yeah. how how sort of like craven and opportunistic all of that yeah. discourse was and now cynical, that it's yeah. completely evaporated because it's no longer politically useful for the people who right. planted their flag in that in that ground yes and it's what's really frustrating about that is also that there are people I mean this comes up in a lot of issues you have cynics and then you have um you know good like people in good faith who don't know all the inside politics and behind the scenes weaponization. And, and so they hear stuff and they just believe it. Um, and then there are the people who are actually very much know what they're doing, like the Tom Watsons. Is he relevant enough for us to make fun of him? Yeah, I think it's probably. I mean, if you're on Twitter, you know, if not, yeah. I don't think anybody knows. Right? I know. Can, I really want him to like get some powerful position so I don't look like a psycho who's like extremely online. But he's just such a great... Um, face of everything that's wrong with the disingenuous um, 
smarmy uh, straight white male ally who actually professionally invisibilizes and erases all the people of color and the women LGBTQ people he claims to be championing. Um, yeah, yeah, it's a it's a beautiful it's a beautiful thing to behold. And you're right that there's it like really two, is. there's two layers. There's the people who know what they're doing, and then there are the people who are genuinely care about issues of social justice and are suckered in by those people. And we have exactly. a responsibility to communicate to those people and talk about. For example, I wrote this piece. Um, my girlfriend came up with the title of this piece and turns out the title was a hit. It's called I'm Gay and I Want Medicare for All. And it's just about what Medicare for All would do for LGBTQ right. people. It just hadn't been written yet. Nobody had written that yeah. piece yet. I was astonished when I found out nobody had written it yet. But, you know, there are queer people out there who maybe they're buying the line that, you know, Bernie Sanders old straight. Buying. Yeah. Sorry, couldn't help <laughs> no, it. it. Was, Sorry. Yeah, I'm glad. I'm glad you went. Intentionally, yeah. So I'm they're buying the yeah. line that like Bernie Sanders, old, another old straight white guy, like yeah. that's not going to work for queer people and for queer liberation. And like we have a responsibility to explain because if we don't do it, those arguments are not going to get made that Medicare for all would be transformative in the lives of gay and trans people in this country. Um, right. So, you know, I've been trying to do a little bit more of that as, as time goes on. No, it's really, I mean, it's so disgusting and it's so insulting. It's like, we do, I guess, have to make this argument, right? Which is that like, there are people who are good and straight white men and whose policies, um, empower everyone, including disproportionately the most, um, marginalized, there are people who are bad who come from those communities. Right. And everything in between. Right. I mean, yeah, obviously Sarah Palin's not good for women. They get it when it's very over the top like that. But yeah, it's weird though because um, they get it, but then they they get it and forget it. Like, it, you know, like you'll see people yeah. who seem to understand. Right. I mean, you, you talk to them about Sarah Palin or like a Margaret Thatcher or something. Right. Of course they get it. Right. And then. So suddenly it's like, you, you know, a couple months goes by and now they're tweeting about how like men have, it's time for men to give up the keys to the kingdom. And if women were in charge, then, you know, all of these social problems would evaporate or whatever. It's right. Like, it's like, I know that you're, I know that you're smarter than that. So I'm not entirely sure right. what's going on here, except maybe that you have an instinctive or intuitive attraction to a candidate that you can't actually explain why their policies are going to be better for women. Right. And so you're just retreating into like a frankly dumber form of discourse that you actually no isn't true and yeah. but you're just i don't know panicking or just like i don't know being lazy i'm not really sure what's going on i mean obviously like when someone like obama says that about how old white old white men is was it old white men or just old men need to get out of the way it was just old men. old men yeah so we know why he said that because as he he already made sure he would help stop bernie sanders if he gets ahead um uh, and sorry, so where did, where did, uh, that's like so important, by the way, which is you, you, all the people who claim to be so intersectional somehow don't understand intersectional politics. So they don't get that queer people care about um, healthcare. And we saw this, oh my God, I want to throw up at the debate. Uh, when the climate, Sanders the climate was, change. Oh my God, right? <laughs> How annoying was it? That woman thought it was such a moment, like it, she was like going to go viral, which she did, of course. Yeah. But um, because people are cynics and, and or idiots. But um, she just showed to me that was just like, hi, I have no and, and it's different because that woman, for all I know, the moderator, she doesn't like wear the, the, the mantle of being an intersectional feminist. Uh, it just showed to me it's like, hi, I'm someone who um, doesn't understand the connection between inv the environment and racism or I've never heard of environmental racism. But the seeing people on Twitter, like, yes, queen, that that question who claimed to be intersectional, it's like, are you kidding? People who definitely, if it was, if the situation was 
uh, different somehow. Like if, for example, Bernie Sanders had uh, given a, for instance, if Bernie Sanders had given an answer on climate change that hadn't included anything about race, right. and then Elizabeth Warren gave an answer on climate change that was all about racial justice, they would have said, Elizabeth Warren gets it so much. Yeah, Bernie Sanders exactly. is such a reductionist. He doesn't understand intersectionality. That's what they would right. have said if the roles were, were reversed. But in this case, right. right, I mean, it's extremely opportunistic, isn't it? Yeah. And who can remember uh, Hillary Clinton's famous anti-intersectionalist chant is breaking up the bank's gun and racism. No, that is my that. that is like one of the best moments of the last, you know, like half decade, because it's just the gift that keeps on giving. Like, I, I, I mean, I, I bring it up so often to Same, illustrate yeah. the principle. Right. Yeah. I also bring, you know what we need? We need a new minimum wage d debate because it was so useful in 2016 to make the, the argument that Sanders was the feminist candidate at, through that, right? Literally minimum wage, um, what majority of minimum wage earners are women and people of color. Uh, Sanders wanted to raise the minimum wage to 15. Hillary was okay with it being at 15. And finally, thanks to Sanders pushing her, she did like back fight for 15. But it's a perfect but at example first she of how she was like twelve. She was like literally. Yeah, she was no, like, she was. Yeah, she was like, why don't we do twelve? Like she actually low. She like negotiated exactly. it down. Right. She actually literally was like, why don't I suggest something lower than this? This national movement is is fighting for and organizing around. Well, I mean, we but haven't that's, made a big yeah. deal out of it, but I do think that we can have a conversation about at-will employment. I mean, it is true that Bernie Sanders' labor plan is the only one that is proposing that we end at-will employment. And because women are often discriminated against at work for a variety of reasons, I mean, you can imagine millions of scenarios. But, you know, women are discriminated right. against for being pregnant, actually. That is something that has, you know, popped up in the course of, of this campaign cycle. Women are discriminated against because they won't sleep with their boss, you know? Right. There are all kinds of ways in which women are let go for completely arbitrary reasons. And of course, that's illegal. Right. But who has right. the time after they've just after they've just lost their job, if they don't have union representation, you know, they're scrambling to, like, take care of their bills. Who has the time to go, you know, sue their boss for discrimination? Really, the only thing that's going to solve this problem, like with a silver bullet, is ending at will employment. Um, and yeah. so I think that that's a, one another metric along which Bernie Sanders can be said to be the feminist candidate. And of course, that goes for people of color as well and queer people who, right. of course, face discrimination in workplace environments on a regular basis. Um, I'm not really sure. It just hasn't been quite as clear. It hasn't been quite as crisp as the 15 to 20 thing. Yeah. But, you know, we can continue to make these arguments and in, in yeah, let's as, do that. We'll as do 2020 that dawns. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so as someone who two things I have to ask you about, um, you are queer and yet at the same time you are not backing Mayor Pete, explain. Can, can you believe it? It's How does that happen? Yeah. <laughs> you know, I actually don't think that I, I don't think that queer women are on the Pete train. I think that there's, you know, um, there's something about, you know, queer men and queer women have like a beautiful history of kinship and struggle uh, through, throughout the, the decades. You know, when, when the AIDS crisis hit, it was often, you know, queer women would, you know, um, sacrifice a lot in their personal lives to act as caregivers for their gay, gay male friends mm -hmm. who were um, HIV positive or dying of AIDS. Right. Um, but at this, but you know, like, like times have changed a little bit. And as the gay community has built visibility in popular culture. I think that some of the less politicized um, 
like iterations of these groups have actually gravitated to different corners. So I just, mm-hmm. I don't, I don't think that there's like a strong lesbian contingent behind yeah, Mayor Pete. Right? I think that yeah. he's seen as sort of like a gay guy's gay guy and like, yeah. you know, like queer women are not like super so excited awful. about Mayor Pete. I think, I think that uh, for queer women, it really is like breaks down along uh, class lines. And really it's like most of the time working class uh, queer women support Bernie Sanders and uh, queer women who, are slightly cushier, uh, live slightly more comfortable lives, tend to support Elizabeth Warren. And that's that. Yeah. Obviously, there, there are exceptions, of course. But. Of course, yeah. And then the other thing is, um, I'm going to go there. I think it's important to, to, we have to vet candidates early on. Mm-hmm. And um, you did suggest that you, there's a photo of you, uh, your girlfriend, um, <laughs> some other people, uh, I don't have in front of me. What is it? It's, do you, can you remind people what it says? But, but you make a, an, an, a very good, alleg- a very, um, worrying allegation. What is it? I don't about even know. About Sanders. Oh, well, that Sanders is your wife. Oh yeah. Sanders is our, <laughs> Sanders is our wife. <laughs> you guys are bigamists. Oh, that's Gotta right. Get that's ahead the of photo. This. Yeah, that's yeah. the photo. Okay, so, yeah, so the, the, photo, thing is, yeah. the reason I wasn't following is because there's so Sorry. many photographs of me and my girlfriend, who's also my fiance, and uh, Bernie oh, Sanders, and cutouts of Bernie Sanders that it's hard to know which one we're talking about. Um, Got it. So, okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, it's actually been. Uh, we do joke sometimes about how it used to be an exclusively same-sex relationship, and times have right. changed. Um, <laughs> yeah, Sanders I, challenges a lot of um, you know norms and <laughs> binaries, so it makes sense. Yeah, it's true. You know, it's actually been it's actually been really uh, wonderful to have a partner who's just as excited about Bernie Sanders as I I haven't talked. I haven't talked about this. uh, I don't talk about my partner that much on podcasts, but it is interesting because when in 2015, I climbed aboard the Bernie train like a little bit before her and it took her a minute to like come around. And it was all the same stuff, you know, that we see now. these really well-meaning people who were just like, well, you know, like he's a man and maybe it's time for a right. change, you time know, for like, yeah, and, sure. um, I mean, it took only like three or four months of, of me like gently making arguments to the contrary. And then it was like a light bulb switched and she was like, I have no right. idea what I was thinking. It's Bernie or right. bus baby. And so yeah. for, you know, for, for several years now, both of us have been, um, super excited about the prospect of a Bernie Sanders presidency and like really are working our asses off in DSA to get Bernie elected, but also build the socialist movement at the same time, which is the purpose of the DSA for Bernie campaign. It's like, we are running an independent campaign so that we can not oh, okay. only knock doors for, I mean, we're doing all the same work that you do with the Bernie campaign, but also to build our own organization so that we can build, you know, the largest socialist organization in the country. So we have something that's left after all of this, no matter what happens, no matter win or lose, we need to have a robust socialist organization there, um, you know, holding, holding down the fort. So she and I have been doing that, um, you know, tirelessly for, for years building DSA. And now we're building DSA through the Bernie campaign. And, uh, you know, we're engaged. We just got engaged. And, um, it's kind of a question of like, are we gonna have time to get married in 2020? I Uh-oh. mean, we have to wait yeah. and see what happens with Bernie Sanders. So to circle back to the original implication, is he a member of our relationship? Arguably? Yeah. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. 
I'm glad. Well, I wanted to make sure you had a chance to reveal this to a like a, a sympathetic uh, interviewer, <laughs> so you could get you know. We thank could get you, ahead of thank it. you for giving me the opportunity to air it out. Yeah. Yeah, of course. Um, I can't imagine being with someone who wasn't a Bernie person. I don't Even get with it. Warren, who I find like much more obviously, like I'm, I'm, I, I, I've had Liza on Liza Featherstone to talk about that piece she wrote. Warren is not uh, Sanders. She's also not Hillary. Mm-hmm. Um, but I still, I don't think I could be uh, in, a, in a meaningful relationship with someone who is a Warrenite, which doesn't mean I, it's not a statement of how, it's, it's a statement of how much I love Sanders, honestly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I, feel, I, feel, I feel the same. Well, well I mean, this yeah. is the thing is that this isn't, for, for, for those of us who are actually like in, in this moment, like squarely on the Bernie Sanders camp, I do think that it's different from an ordinary scenario where you just have your candidate preference. I do think that a lot of us have, you know, lifelong principles that we're bringing to this that make us feel like we're involved in a once in a lifetime opportunity to build power and um, fight for justice and fight for working people and change this country. And I it's so it's not so much like I have my candidate and I could never be with somebody who had a different candidate because that would be right. like kind of petty and lame and under normal mm, circumstances. Yeah. It's like like, I don't know how I could connect uh, right, on, right. on like with a the deep person, level yeah. with somebody who didn't understand the importance of this moment and who wasn't fighting right. alongside me it's for a better world, right? Right, yeah, exactly, yeah. I mean, it's like I love the guy personally. I find him so endearing. But, yes, it's really because of the values. And and it's, it's hard. It's You know what's so hard about being a Sanders supporter is, like, the narrative that we are – they're always gaslighting us, the Sanders haters, because – They'll be like, oh, look at Bernie people. They go crazy if you if you criticize their their idol, their messiah. And then they proceed to, of course, be totally unfair to Sanders. And then people get upset and they respond on Twitter. And then it's like, oh, look at the Bernie bros. It's like you never talk about the abusive, quote unquote, abusive behavior online towards um, Brianna Joy Gray, right. uh, Nina Turner, uh, the, the condescending behavior towards you that we saw from Charles Pierce. So that's I'm just like that's such a disgusting argument. Yeah, it's it's it, it, I completely agree with that. And I also think that like this is something that I just want to impress upon people because I've dealt with a fair amount of this myself. If you really truly believe in the transformative potential of this moment and the idea that we are actually building a movement for the first time in living memory of ordinary people who want to take back the state, which is the institution that we all supposedly own in common, to take it back for the people into the common realm. If you believe that that is actually happening right now, then you should be throwing all your weight into this movement. Don't right. hold back. But then when you do, these people, these detractors will call you a cultist they'll call you yeah. a hack they'll call you you know they'll say you're crazy and wild-eyed i mean they'll do anything they can to dissuade you from being passionate but honestly why wouldn't you be passionate if you really believe that that's what's happening if you believe in the message of the sanders campaign not me us if you believe right. that you know medicare for all intuition free college and green new deal are not just necessary things that guarantee social rights to all people which people deserve because they are people but also that they're the beginning of a process of transforming the world and making it a less miserable place, then why wouldn't you go all in in this moment? I mean, right. you have to. And when people call you a cultist, just tell them to fuck off, honestly. Yeah, that's a good idea. Yeah, I like that. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I'm a, I'm a cultist because I support the person who not only has the values I have, but also turns out is the most electable against uh, Donald Trump, which is just an interesting thing that people seem to 
not want to see, right. um, which is why your piece is so important. Did we get through all of your, your whole thesis of your of your article? I was just, yeah, I, I, think we I did. have to admit, I was a little distracted by my pressing concern to we clear did. up the there's, marriage proposal thing. There's maybe one yeah. final thing, which uh, Matt had this idea to write this in our piece, and he's completely right, which is that, you know, you wouldn't know it from the mainstream media, but Bernie Sanders has actually been very, very... Um, gentle with his primary opponents so far, including Hillary Clinton and including, you know, all of his opponents in the, you know, 2020 race. Um, People act like if Bernie Sanders ever makes an untoward comment about a rival, suddenly angry Bernie and, you know, finger wagging and all of this stuff. But he really, he actually has not even remotely begun to take the gloves off. But the rules of primary contests are quite different from the rules of a general election. Um, If he were to go against Donald Trump, I mean, his gloves are already off against Donald Trump. When he talks about Donald Trump, it's like no holds barred. So imagine if yeah. four times as many people are watching that, because that's the, that's the actual you know dif- difference between a primary contest and a general election is that you get about four times the amount of like active regular participation in the discourse, and he's completely gloves off against Donald Trump. I mean, we're going to see Bernie unleashed, and I think that yeah. we should feel excited about that. When he um, Matt kind of dug this up. Um, and in Bernie's uh, 2006 Senate campaign in Vermont, he was challenged by a self-funded mega millionaire named Rich Tarrant. And uh, Bernie just like slammed him. He was like, you are an out of touch economic elite who was trying to buy this election and the people of Vermont wouldn't let you touch it with a 10 foot pole. And he completely crushed the guy. The guy had poured in so much of his own money that he made that the most expensive race in that seat's history. And Bernie beat him by 33 percent, 33 points rather. So, um, you know, I think that there's a lot of uh, we should just bear in mind that uh, Sanders versus Trump contest, there are going to be fireworks that we haven't even can't even imagine yet because of his hands are kind of tied behind his back in the primary. Yeah. But um, I just want to return to Charles Pierce's uh, response to your thread that I referred to earlier. Um, you, this was when, I guess, Ayanna Presley had chose not to um, endorse Sanders. And your response was something that, that uh, I'll get to the response, but it was, it was unruly enough and uh, immature enough that Charles, M., Charles P. Pierce had to step in and say, Bernie, you really have to get the children under control. They're doing you no good. Uh, what was the thing that you said that made him intervene? You said, Ayanna Presley hasn't been consistently aligned with the rest of the squad. For example, in July, AOC, Omar, and Tlaib voted no on a resolution to condemn the civilian-led boycott, divestment, and sanctions campaign against Israel. Presley voted yes. Um, and then you clarified people in the replies here uh, saying, I'm trying to castigate Presley for not conforming. I'm just pointing out that she has different politics than the rest of the squad, a schism that predates the presidential endorsements up to you decide which set of politics is better. Um, and as you pointed out, people were losing their shit yeah, over like observational I, tweets. I think I yeah. understand what was going on. Well, actually some, some uh, kind observers pointed out to me that basically what this was, was that um, our opponents, in the discourse, we're expecting the Bernie bros to say horrible things about Ayanna Presley. And when when nobody really did that, they kind of just like decided that what I had said was uh, was enough to warrant whatever response they had already prepared They They were prepared to lose their shit. Right. Basically. They had to they had to use it on someone. So they it, found the, like, energy, yeah. the, the queer feminist making a very <laughs> measured critique, policy based critique of Ayanna Presley. You know, and it wasn't pretend, even a critique. I mean, yeah. I obviously I do have a critique, but it's not. But what I right. did wasn't actually level a critique. It was point out 
about a policy difference. And, you know, yeah, I, I actually... It was a clarification, right. And I don't, I didn't go into it, but, you know, I could have said a lot more. I mean, if you read these profiles sure. of Ayanna Presley, she is very clear that she is much more conservative than the other three members right. of the squad. She says that in her own words. And on a, on, a, on a number of occasions, she has made that clear. Her history is very different. I think that, you know, she's a valuable presence to have in Congress. You know, I'm not... I don't think that she's like some like horrific neoliberal sellout or whatever. Yeah. But I do think right. that she's different from the other three who are the products of the Bernie Sanders moment and movement in a way that Presley isn't. And so, you know, I could have said all that, but instead I just said, here's, right. a, here's a vote where they voted differently. And then people yeah, you said, off with your, your head. On, on Israel, Palestine, you didn't, you just provided it as an example right. of the difference. Yeah. But that was you being hysterical, I guess. <laughs> right. You know, those were kind of heady times. What was, what, what, what was that? What date was that? You November know, 7th, I so believe. I think that was yeah. like the peak of what will go down in history as the like great uh, Bernie Warren wars of the fall. Like yeah. basically November 6th, sorry, yeah. we all, mm -hmm. yeah, October and November, like, uh, Bernie supporters had had their concerns about Elizabeth Warren for a very long time, but had been holding their fire because there was a sense in which, you know, people who support Elizabeth Warren are, are, eminently gettable for Bernie yeah. Sanders. And of course, she's been an ally historically. Right. And so why would we train our fire on her when there are so many other people right. that, who are so much worse? Um, and then Warren starts to rise in the polls. And I think that people got a little bit freaked out. And I think that's fine. Right. Like, I don't think that that, sure. you know, I I. I what participated in that, right? Like, come on, Elizabeth Warren's rising in the polls. That shouldn't be happening. Bernie said, if you like whatever you right. like about Elizabeth Warren, yeah. either it's actually not very realistic and a good thing to take into the presidency or Bernie Sanders does it better. Those are the two options. Right. So like exactly. we should just yeah. be making that clear to people. So that started to happen around late September. Like people started to come out of the woodwork and make their arguments. And it really was like a match to a powder keg and people were really at each other's throats for about six weeks or two months there. So, you know, I think if I tweeted that today about Ayanna Presley, I don't think that people would right. freak out in the same way. It's just, you know how the discourse happens. It's like we all kind of get into a collective mood together. And the mood at that particular time was, I want to cut your head off if you disagree with me about this. Right. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, yeah, I, and it is hard. I struggle a little bit with how to talk about it because I do think she's, you know, I want to engage her supporters and I also want, I do believe Sanders is much better. But I also think she's like so much better than anyone else besides him, like after him. He's like an A, she's a C and everyone else is like an F. Mm -hmm. That's about Except, right. I like, yeah. Um, and what about anything you want to say about the uh, the way you were attacked for talking about? Uh, oh, any response to the political cool? Is that how you found out you were cool? By oh, the way, yeah, the, and yeah. it was a huge ego boost, honestly. Yeah, you know, I actually didn't. I didn't hate that piece, to be honest. I thought that that yeah. piece was um, was pretty interesting. The only thing that was missing in it, and, and the reporter reached out to me, and I didn't respond because I was busy. It was like Thanksgiving week. Um, but so, you know, I think that they reached out in good faith and I don't think it was yeah. like a smear piece or anything. Sure. Um, what it was missing was that people don't understand that Jacobin articles have been critical of Elizabeth Warren for actually a very long time. Mm -hmm. Like it, it kind of implied 
like that we had never that we had only spoken about Elizabeth Warren as though she in glowing terms prior to some moment when that switched. And that's actually just empirically and functionally not true. Right. Um, you know, for example, the best piece that we've published so far about the difference between Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders is by Sean Goody. And it's called You Can Have Brandeis or You Can Have Debs. And it compares Elizabeth yeah. Warren to Louis Brandeis and uh, Bernie Sanders to Eugene Debs. And that was right. published in the winter issue of from last year of Jacobin's print magazine, which means that Sean was writing it in the fall. Oh, yeah. So, right. you know, this is, and I was, people were freaking out at me for going too hard against Elizabeth Warren in April. Like, I was yeah. getting slammed in April for being extremely unfair to Elizabeth Warren. So the piece is not quite right about the timeline. Um, that said, I, like I was telling you earlier, I do think that there was a discourse sh uh, shift about Elizabeth Warren. And, you know, I don't think that it's disingenuous. I don't think there's anything wrong with just like trying to figure out how you're going to relate to erstwhile allies who are pre pre presenting right. an obstacle um, yeah. to success and victory. I mean, it's hard to figure that stuff out. And I think that people's tactics changed as the circumstances evolved and unfolded. So I think that that's, you know, understandable. Um, yeah. And yes, yeah. And Jacobin writers are really cool and attractive. So that's true. And right. I'm glad that they pointed that out. Oh, pushback, pushback. <laughs> the official response to that from ranging from like Shuja Hader <laughs> right. to uh, Matt Carp was a, a, a firm uh, denial of coolness. Wow. Um, rude. Yeah. Rude. I know. Um, I, and also I have had on um, Tim Higginbotham. Mm hmm. Is it Tim or Tom? Because his Twitter name is one and his real <laughs> yeah, life he's, is the he's, other. Yeah, he's but... a little jokester. Yeah, it's Tim. Yeah. Okay, so Tim Higginbotham. I had him on and I had Matt Brunick. And it's and both of them had critiques of, of Warren. I'm using that term correctly this time, not like I was last time. That are, you know, did not turn her into a cartoon villain at all and gave her credit for certain things that she did. So... Yes, and they and that, yeah. Tim has been beating that drum at Jacobin since like early summer, yeah. basically. Yeah, um, you know it's funny. Like we got we've got people freaking out at us for being too mean to Warren. We've got you wouldn't believe it. We've got people really mad at us for being too nice to Warren too. Right. I mean, yeah. it's kind of hard. It's tricky to navigate all of it, and ultimately we just have to. We obviously we want to sense what the popular response is and adjust accordingly. But really, we just have to make our own reasoned decisions about what the best way to proceed is. You know. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I got to say the best thing for everyone so far, like it, I think if you are trying to get respect um, from progressives, the best thing you can do is have a fight with Mayor Pete, because I never loved Klobuchar more than I did just watching her go after Pete. Honestly, Klobuchar's had some moments where like, I mean, I think she's despicable. Like I actually think that yeah. politically she's the most she's despicable. Awful. She's worse than Biden as far as I'm concerned yeah. politically. Yeah. Um, I think, I mean, just her entire political brand is no, we can't do that. No, your life yeah, can't right. be better. It's, no, we can't. Yeah, it's yeah. no, we can't. It's slogan. Yeah. She's uh, anyway, she's awful. But uh, I couldn't help, you know, I mean, I was, I was like, I thought, I was kind of found her an appealing presence when she was yeah. berating Pete. And then I exactly. also, when, remember in the previous debate, or maybe it was two debates prior or something, when um, uh, 
Elizabeth Warren just refused to say that Medicare for all would, in fact, result in yeah. a tax, raising taxes. Right. But as Bernie Sanders always says, he's so clear about it. Look, we're going to raise taxes and we're right. going to eliminate co-pays and, and right. premiums and deductibles and we're going to lower your pharmaceutical costs. And so at the end of the day, that's a savings for you. Like, I, I trust you to be smart. Working class people do kitchen table economics like this all the time. This is not right. like a, a this is not a far fetched concept for people that you would like pay more on one thing to save money on another thing. That's yes. completely obvious to yeah. anybody who struggles right. with money. Um, so Elizabeth Warren refused to say anything like that. She's so afraid of the right wing response, yeah. which was going to be, ooh, Elizabeth Warren wants to raise taxes. And yeah. she just wanted, she thought she was being smart by being evasive, but ultimately sure. it made her look really untrustworthy and like she yeah. had something to hide. And Amy Klobuchar called her on it. She was like, I know. Bernie Sanders is being honest. I don't agree with Bernie Sanders, right. but at least he's telling me what he think, thinks. And uh, in that moment, I definitely also felt a little fondness for Amy. If only she were a yeah. fighter for our side, because I actually think she's exactly. pretty good up there when she uh, decides to get her claws into somebody. Yeah, instead of being the radical centrist exactly. uh, that she is. Mm -hmm. um, and of course, it's so funny that you could be like, have the extreme personality to throw a uh, stapler at someone. Uh, which she does, her employees, um, which, of course, according to Sadie Doyle, it's sexist of us to think that that's problematic. Oh, my God. Um, our mutual friend and fan, Sadie Doyle. Um, but uh, how are you going to have the, that, that kind of personality and, like, the highest turnover rate among your staff and then also be so incredibly boring and centrist? <laughs> such a waste. It really yeah. is such a waste. Right? I agree. I yeah. agree. Well, thank you so much. Um, uh, any, anything else you want to make sure we get to yeah, before? Well, here's, uh, let me just make yeah. a plug. So. Yes. But Micah Utrecht, who's an editor at Jacobin, and yeah. I have co-written the book, and we actually just sent it <gasps> off to the what? typesetter. And the book is called um, "The Book Is Called Bigger Than Bernie: How We Go from the Sanders Campaign to Democratic Socialism." So the, wow. I, the idea of the book is that this, are you body shaming socialism? Uh, <laughs> oh my God, we Sorry. haven't thought about that. We're gonna have to change the title. Yeah, I know. Um, so problematic. You, so we're gonna basically make the argument in the book that this this movement needs to be bigger than a single campaign. The campaign has provided us with the opportunity to use it as a springboard to build a movement that can actually transform political life in the United States. But it's he'll tell you, he'll be the first to tell you that's what not me us means, that the movement needs to be bigger yeah. than the campaign itself. And in fact, that the campaign will hit uh, if it were, if he were to succeed, if he were to become president, when he succeeds, when, when, he, when succeeds, he is president, uh -huh. when he becomes in the president, White House, yeah. he's going to need this movement to be building pressure outside the halls of power in order for him to interface with the reactionaries in the government in a way that actually yields results. So this movement is really the lifeblood of, of the whole thing. If you are a Bernie Sanders supporter, you need to be thinking about how to participate in and build the movement. So uh, Mike and I believe that it should be a socialist movement. We're socialists you know, Jacobin. So that's not a surprise. Yeah. And we are ba have basically written a book that's kind of like an overview of the central ideas that we have about how we should build the socialist movement going forward. Awesome. Is and it Verso? It's Verso and it'll be out in April. So um, listeners, uh, keep an eye out for it. Yeah, we got to have a, an event for you guys. We'll do absolutely an interview. That yeah. sounds great. Awesome. Also, you can see my latest piece uh, that I wrote for FAIR that you guys cross posted, where I talk about the media bias um, of Yamiche Alcindor. Oh, great. One of the moderators from the last debate, yeah. Oh, I didn't realize that um, you did that. Okay, I'm going to go read yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because she has, like, she has like an incredible anti-Sanders bias that's like... Bias, yeah. Yeah, very extensive, yeah. documented. Yes. 
Um, although I have to say, you know, it was it was amazing. She she was outshone, outshined by, <laughs> outshined right, right by um, the other PBS moderator who asked Sanders to talk about um, race, not climate change, as if they're unrelated. And of course, uh, none of the moderators. He was the only person interrupted um, while responding to a previous question. Uh, and Joe Biden was allowed to answer a question about reparations with a response um, about immigration. God. <laughs> yeah, but one of the best the best moments of the post-debate analysis was watching people freak out about how incredibly well Biden did. And Chris Cuomo actually said he was alert the entire time. Like, that That's is how so low the bar sad. is. It's so sad. Oh, I, I want to recommend a piece in Jacobin that's cross-posted from Carl Bayer's blog. Uh, oh, yeah. Yeah. It's, Friend of the show, too. Uh, Joe, Joe Biden will lose a general election to Donald Trump. He makes the point that I hadn't quite heard articulated yet, but it's so true, which is that Joe Biden politically has no choice if he's the nominee but to run against Trump on a campaign whose central message is that we need a return to normalcy. Um, yeah. And and yet Joe Biden is the least normal human who's ever existed. Like if you watch him for more than a few minutes at, the t at a time, it's just like baffling. He's like a doddering lunatic. He's like extremely yeah. strange. And um, he's really kind of the worst person to sell. Like, I don't even think that a return to normalcy is the right, you know, approach. But if you were going to go with that approach and I could see some merits to it, even though I disagree with it. You, sure. you wouldn't send Joe Biden up there to make that case. Right. Because really what that means is what you that the whole point of a campaign like that is ending the era of presidential embarrassment, which to my mind is not even political mm. enough. Like it's not a sure. It's not a right, good, right, right. It's not a good right, right. campaign. It's to terrible. Run. But if you want to but do that, but if you yeah. want to do that, don't send Joe Biden to do that. Yeah, right? I agree. So I recommend people go read that at Jacobin. Yeah, and I'm going to have Carl on again, friend of the show. And this. Yeah, that, I'm glad I, I've had Matt on before. I'll have him on again. So don't worry about uh being the face of this article. All right, cool. Uh, you had some I'm sure seeming, he's uh, having fun with his uh, with his baby right now. Yeah, yeah. We should do a site visit for the Katie Hopper <laughs> show. Right. Um, well, yeah. Thank you again so much, and uh, everyone should read Megan's work. They should follow her on Twitter, where she is what at Megan M E A G A N M letter M day. Um, well, you and I said we were only going to talk for, what did we say, 25 minutes? Oh, and I got it. I got you. It's that Bernie Sanders um, sneak attack. I we start talking about him and can't, then can't nothing can, Yeah. We spoke twice as much as, uh, it was twice as long as we anticipated. Well, and the joke at the beginning was that if I sp I'm supposedly hanging out with my family oh, no. right now, and then if we left or them they, alone too long, they were going to go over to yeah. Pete Buttigieg. So I need to go check on them and make sure Yeah, you got it. Yeah. Me. And please tweet. I'll do a follow-up. So make sure you let me know <laughs> so I can tell listeners about it. Okay. Sounds good. All right. Bye, Katie. Okay. Bye. Hi, Megan. Thanks. Thanks. Thanks again for listening to the Katie Helper Show. See you soon. Stand by for an interview with Faiza Shaheen, who is the director of the Center for Labor and Social Studies, or CLASS, a think tank with a twist, and also ran as a Labor Party member of Parliament. The Katie Helper Show is edited by Ted Reedy. Our theme song is by the band Cordova. As always, you can support The Katie Helper Show at patreon.com slash The Katie Helper Show. 